Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton, and we have a very, very, very special guest this week, Jennifer Palmieri, who was the White House Director of Communications under Obama and the Director of Communications for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. She has an incredible new book out called Dear Madam President, and I picked it up thinking I wasn't actually going to read it. I was just going to skim it for this interview. And next thing I knew, I had read the whole thing cover to cover, highlighted it, had page ears and this, that, and the other. Uh, I'm really, really excited to talk to her today about what it's been like since Donald Trump won and Hillary Clinton lost, what it's like to work for people who do things that you wouldn't necessarily agree with, specifically um, when she worked uh, for John Edwards and um, Bill Clinton and, and folks like that, uh, that cheated on their significant others. Um, we're going to talk about the Trump administration and if someone like Jennifer wakes up every morning like I do and scratches their head still believing that this is not real. Um, and we're going to talk about the fact that there will one day be a female president, and when will that be? So uh, I'm really excited to uh, to welcome Jennifer to the show. Thank you for joining us today. This is very exciting. I'm really happy to be here. I Thank you. loved really your nice book. You. That's have, amazing to hear. I have so many questions. Yay. I have so many <laughs> folded earmarks and little highlighted notes and things wow. like that. All right, so let's start where... The, the moment that you probably hate starting at, but the one that I am so fascinated about, election night <laughs> in the peninsula. Ugh, yes. Let's just get this part over and okay, done with. Okay, that's fine. I mean, when I drive past that hotel, I just, it, I, my body just goes into... Have you had therapy over no. about this? Or? No, uh, the book was, that the was, the was the book. The book right? was therapy yeah. and the podcast yeah, and things like that. Yeah. So, okay, so I'm just... I, I'm sure you're sick of talking about it, but no. I am so fascinated by this idea of you go into this thing thinking one thing is going to happen right. and something different happens. As, as someone who was watching the news and the, that, that god-awful New York Times ticker thing that was changing, right. what is it like being in the room with Hillary Clinton, with you know all of you there? You've, you've been through this two-year battle and you, did you think going into it that day that it was going to end the way it did? No, I thought we were going to win. I did, I did, I had, I had this, I woke up feeling very uneasy, but on, on election day, but I really don't think that was, I don't think that was any sort of premonition. I mean, I, I think about November 8th, 2016 and November 9th, 2016 as two different universes. And, you know, whatever unease I had on the 8th, had nothing to do with the universe we entered on the, the ninth, right? They are just different. They are different galaxies. Um, but I was uneasy on the eighth. I think it was just at the end of a really hard struggle. I, you know, I know this about myself. I felt I hated the convention too. <laughs> I felt just very. It's like all the stress gets built up and then it demands its due at the end. So. I imagined she was going to win, but I didn't wake up with like this feeling of euphoria on election day. So did you think that like, I mean, what's it, what's it like before we get to what happened, yeah. which we know what happened, what is it like in the room? I mean, we, we get to see it on TV right. and we get to like, is it exciting? Is it nervous? No. Are people crying? Are they laughing? Are you eating cheese dip? Like what? No, what? it's not. It's like, it, you are probably eating cheese dip. I, yeah, we were, we were, you know, we did have, there was a lot of food. Um, 
but it is i you know it, that's the thing the thing that's remarkable about these remarkable about these experiences that happen at these very high levels is that there's not really that much remarkable about them because it's just a bunch of humans trying to get through a really hard process together and we experience the, the same we experience that night the same way i think you know most people did which was um you know and, and the way we got through other nights but you of like the other hard nights in the in the campaign what was hard to fathom because i that night um you know it at first it looked fine and then every election night has its surprises and you just sort of like go in knowing that right so i was like okay there's some states we're expected to win we're not going to win we're not going i bet we only win by two points nationally which by the way is basically like what happened mm-hmm. um and there's going to be some surprises and there's going to be some scares but it's going to be fine like that's just kind of your going in you know and then um relatively early on robbie muck pulled me aside and said there's something off in some of the states. <laughs> and you're like, what do you mean? And then he said, well, there's something off in most of the states. And he said, um, um, he said, I, um, he said, if we are up, he's like, there's like anywhere between like, we're like two to five points off in most states. So, if we have a six-point cushion, it's going okay. And if we don't, you know, it looks like we're having some problems. And um, does Hillary know at this point? No. And he said, how do you – can we talk about how I talk to Hillary about this? So is Hillary – so you're you're all watching you're, – you're getting these results from the television just like every other American, Basically, right? Right, basically yeah, right, right. That's the thing. It's like you really are just participants on the, at this point, at these points. Or, or, I mean, you're just spectators at this point as well. And so uh, – um, so Hillary has to know. So Hillary you said. Know. So I didn't talk. I did not talk to Hillary that night. Um, the you know Robbie and John were the ones that were talking to her. Rob, John Podesta and Robbie Mook. And so you know I said in in it was the thing that Nick the thing that was so you know surreal about it is I kept thinking okay well. All right, this is like Iowa, you know, and mm-hmm. we'll figure, you know, we had a hard Iowa, it was really close, and we'll figure it out, and we'll come back tomorrow, and we'll do better. And you're like, but there is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. This right. Is this is it. You know, like, we've, you know, this is like another bad primary night, except this, except this is it. And it, I still had the sense that, you know, it was really scary early. It was really scary early on. You know, you thought at first, and you thought maybe, well, maybe it's, you know, we like Florida wasn't doing well. North Carolina wasn't doing well. And Virginia was sliding. You know, we, we were way up in Virginia on the polls and it was really sliding. And we thought, well, maybe this is a Southeast thing. Maybe this is a Southern thing. Mm. Um, and then you start having trouble in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan. And so you're holding in your brain all of the different um, uh, combinations by which you can still win. And are, are you feeling sick to your stomach or are you, is, have you done uh, a shock? Thing? You know, it is, it's it, shock that manifests itself and you behaving normally. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, Which yeah, I think yeah. happens to a lot of humans that are in shock, you know? Yeah. So, um, and, uh, it is because, th- and the other, you know, there's those things there, you know, you're, 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 you're shocked to hear what's happening. You are programmed 
to accept bad news without blanching and reacting. And you're also, because it's been such a long, hard slog, you're also in this frame of mind that, well, we've had other hard nights, we'll get through this one and do and figure it out tomorrow. So like all of these things are swirling in your head at once. And, um, and you know, I, I, I just thought, right. At one point I was like, well, of course Hillary Clinton's not going to win outright on election night. That would be too easy. <laughs> <laughs> So did you, so do you, do you all go to sleep that night or? Not really. We did, you know, so I thought, you know, I did think, okay, well, um, I mean, I really thought it was like, all right, I guess we have to find this out in the electoral college. I mean, it, it was about at around one in the morning we decided somebody had to go over to Javits, right? Cause that was where the election night celebration was meant to be. And so somebody's got to go over to Javits. And tell everybody to go home because there's people still waiting. And we knew that we couldn't have Hillary speak that night or Tim Kaine speak that night because we still weren't certain what was happening. And Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin were all still out at that point. So we decided to have Podesta do it. So John and I uh, drove over there to the Javits Center. And on our way over, AP called Pennsylvania for Trump. And I think this is probably around 2 in the morning. And then at that point... It is mathematically impossible Possible. to win yeah. by the Electoral College. But, but, you know, my view was John's like, should we, you know, should we say anything different? Should we do anything different? I was like, look, all we know is AP thinks this. Like, oh, like, what, we're going to be like, throw our hands up and be like, oh, okay, I guess we lost. No, we're like, we're not doing that. We're going to, we're going to uh, figure out what really happened. And um, it, I just didn't accept it that night because I thought it was so shocking. I had in the back of my mind about the Russians, you know, we knew that they were trying to mess with the elections. All of a sudden we had an, we had a outcome we didn't expect. Let's what's, you know, obviously we're going to go continue to fight it out in the electoral college, you know, you know, and that's what I wanted to do. Actually, I wanted to continue to fight in the electoral college. Um, and you know, the election for the president of the United States happens on December 19th, not November 8th. So that is, I was not ready to give in that night. Um, a lot of people didn't sleep. I slept for two hours, and I woke up, and I almost wonder sometimes if I hadn't gone to sleep, and I just stayed up, would I have been able to main, remain in the old universe? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to still be awake, though. That, that I'd have to still be awake. So speaking of the, of the old universes versus the new, I still have these moments... Um, where I see Donald Trump uh, being referenced as the president of the United States. And, and it is still surreal to me and a lot of people I know, even people on the right that, you know, that supported him and, mm -hmm. and still kind of do. I mean, is it still that way for you? It is. It surprises me sometimes. You know, I remember like when I heard like he was getting ready to give the State of the Union and I thought, oh, I guess they're going to they're going to let him do that. So I guess he's still president <laughs> or he spoke of the nine 11. I was like, Oh, they're, they're letting him speak of the nine 11 anniversary. I guess he must still be president. Um, so, so it is, it is. Yeah, no, it's surreal. And every day there's something that happens. That's just, you know, that you thought was unimaginable. So if you could do it all over and I'm sure you have had this conversation in your head and with uh -huh. other people, is there not, not what would you do differently, but is there something you think you could have done differently? Right. That's a better question. Um, it, you know, there's, 
when you lose by so little, right, you could have paid more attention to Wisconsin and Michigan and hopefully have won there, right? But we, but that wouldn't have been enough because we lost Pennsylvania. And we poured everything we had into Pennsylvania and we still lost. So uh, you could have early on, in tw- you would have had to start this in 2015, you could have spent a lot of time, money and resources in Arizona, Texas and Georgia. That would be considered a crazy thing to do in 2015. But I think when you're thinking about where, where you know, I think that Democrats can, can continue, can, can still win those Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. But our growth is probably in these other states. Um, and I, the other thing I think personally I could have done different, um, by the way, nobody ever asked them what they could have done better. Have you noticed that? <laughs> no, what? Well, we'll ask Trump. Like nobody, nobody ever says to the Republicans, well, like, "Wow, you didn't get, you lost by, you, you didn't win the popular vote by three million votes." What are you going to do about that? But anyway, next time I'm with Trump, I'm going to ask him a question. <laughs> I will. But, uh, uh, but I could have listened to Hillary more, who had a lot of doubts about. Um, whether she should do this, um, whether... Whether she should run in general. Whether she should run at all. Um, and also was very, you know, had a... You know, she'd been herself for a long time, so she understood how the how um, the press and the public were likely to react to her, and she had a much finer and keener sense of how of where the politics of the country were at the moment than any of us really appreciated. And I think if we had listened to her a little more, it would have gone better. Um, even if she won, though, we'd still have all these divisions in the country that we need to, you know, so it's... Well, one thing that's know. interesting in the book you talk about, there's a moment where, I think it's in 2016, where Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton pull you guys aside Mm -hmm. and they had just read um, the book from the 1950s that had predicted that um, that we were going to be in a world of you know division within the country and that Mm -hmm. it could lead to some sort of Mm -hmm. you know dictator Mm -hmm. uh, taking over Um, when you think about that moment when they and you said in the book that you read you read the book afterwards yeah um, was there something that they knew that that no one else either knew or paid attention to? So I think that they, uh, early on, in the fall of 2015, both of them were very disturbed by the disaffection they saw in the country, and they said it was not like anything they had ever seen. And when Bill and Hillary Clinton tell you there's something happening in American politics that we have never seen before, and they were really deeply disturbed by it because they hadn't seen it and they weren't sure what what could be done about it. Um, and the book that they cited, that was in October. In February, after we lost New Hampshire by 22 points, uh, they said, you know, everybody should read this book. And the book was actually written in the 50s, and it's just anecdotal about the circumstances under which uh, mass movements and authoritarian leaders rise. And it you know, when you read the circumstances, it sounded remarkably like what was happening in America and what was happening to Trump. And so... And it essentially argues that when there are bad things going on and people are can't feed their families and they're not paying attention to politics, but when they're actually not in that place, that's when they start to become divisive or... Yeah, the theory is that when people are living through times of great crisis, that is not when frustration roils to the surface and a country is vulnerable to someone like an authoritarian leader taking over. That because during that time, whether it's a war or you're living in poverty, you the people feel like they have power, not power, they have purpose and they have... Um, um, the, the, the books, the, the True Believer. True Believer, yeah. Yeah, Air Coffer, yeah. 
um, that they have, uh, you know, they're just trying to survive, survive the war or live day to day to get out of poverty and their life has meaning and purpose and they don't focus, they're not frustrated or they're not focused on these frustrations. And it's when things start getting better, but not fast enough or not for everyone that these things come roiling to the surface. And that's what it felt like with all of the change in two wars and 9-11, a digital economy and big demographic changes and all the the housing uh, crisis, Sessions. It's like gay, yeah, gay, gay marriage. Um, uh, just you know, every Healthcare. all, you know, all of, and I, you know, and and I had a moment. All of these changes and just bringing out these frustrations that came royalty in the service. I had a moment where in the week in June of 2015, the one week where gay marriage was upheld by the. Uh, by the United States Supreme Court, and uh, they upheld health care, and um, it looked like the Confederate flag was going to come down after the South Carolina State Capitol, after the murders and the, the race, racially motivated murders in, in the Charleston church, and people in Brooklyn were so happy, <laughs> and uh, it was like a big party that weekend in New York, because people were so thrilled at all of this progress that had been made. And I remember thinking, you know, there's a lot of people in this country that are going to feel alienated by all of this stuff. And, you know, Trump had announced just two weeks before, and with that speech where he called Mexicans, you know, rapists and criminals, and some of them, I suppose, are good people, but I felt like, wow, we could be in for a hell of a backlash. And that's what it felt was represented in the Trump campaign. So you've worked in a number of, um, you've worked on a number of campaigns, you've worked in the White House, um, and you've interacted with the media uh, quite a lot. And Mm -hmm. I have the belief, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, that a big reason that we are in the place that we are today um, is because of the media. Yeah. Um, there was just a report, actually, that I literally just read 45 minutes ago that just came out, um, pointing out how uh, we are consuming more news, more media than we ever have in history, um, and um, we are be- more divisive because of it. Uh, and this country is more d- divided. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do think that, um, uh, you know, what I think for... The circumstances of this election, the original sin was the coverage of Hillary and emails. And it's just, you know, I will, I, I will never forgive <laughs> for, for how the uh, press covered that because it was, it was a gross. Well, Nate Silver thinks it was the thing, not Comey, not no, even it, Hillary. Well, because Comey was just about emails, right? Yeah. It's like it's the original sin. It was the thing, yeah. And and just um, such like grossly exaggerated, uh, overcovered um, to the point that people have to believe she did something wrong. Because why would the press spend so much time on it? It's the story that proved to me the way media covers politics is entirely broken. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, there was, you know, there's there's some superficial things about that, which is I think the press thought that Hillary was going to win and they were, like, going to push her to be a better president. They're going to make her better in this process. That's what that's what the campaign was going to be about and make sure that she, um, that she doesn't take this for granted or we're going to, you know, insist that we get a certain amount of access and, like, that was what the lesson they were going to teach her. Um, but I really, after having reflected on it for a long time, I think what's at the root of it, you know, is... It was a suspicion about her, right? It was just, it was all about suspicion. Well, why did she do it? Well, 
you know, other people could, you know, other cabinet secretaries use personal email accounts too. Well, why does she have a personal server? Well, her husband had a personal server because he's a former president of the United States and the government gave him one. If your spouse had a server in the basement, maybe you would use it too, you know. <laughs> but why did she do it? But it was like, but why? And it was, it felt to me like the witch trials, you know, it's like that primal. It's this question, it's like this motive, like what's her motivation and suspicion about that yeah. with a woman seeking power. I think, you know, at a, you know, primal level, that's what those questions were about. But um, it it just started us, you know, it made, I think it made Trump possible. I mean, a lot of things in this country did too, but that, um, I, the, I think the, the media is doing a better job of covering Trump now, but it is got a lot to answer for. Do you, um, uh, when you when you think about Comey and that letter that, that, that came yeah. out 11 days before, I remember at the time everyone was like, Comey's the worst, you know, everyone on the left was like, Comey's the worst person imaginable. He's a, <laughs> a he's a Trump supporter, inside Republican, blah, 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 blah. And now that he, you know, since he got fired and he's like seen as this like savior because he's like tweeted a few things about like, <laughs> about honesty and, and liberty and so on, like, and lies. Do you, how do you feel about that? I don't think that he, um, I don't think he was trying to help Donald Trump. I don't think he was purposely trying to hurt Hillary. Um, I mean, I think he's a Republican, but I think that he uh, generally manages to put put his uh, political leanings aside. But I do fault him that for, I, I think that he doesn't see it this way, but I think he was much more concerned about protecting his own reputation. And he was concerned that because the Clinton case was so high profile, um, that he was going to get criticized for it. So he wanted to take this, these extraordinary steps, including doing a press conference to talk about the results of the investigation, which the FBI never does. Um, and then, of course, the famous letter uh, later, um, and he says he was doing that to protect the, F- the integrity of the FBI mm-hmm. and that he was going by the book. But those are two very extraordinary, uh, hap- you know, certain yeah. occurrences that the FBI doesn't do. And I think he was trying to protect his own reputation. And... Um, that came at a very grave cost. And now he's considered a hero. Uh, <clears throat> Again, because he was a hero during the Bush well, administration. So much, so much of it is, 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 uh, is the way it's covered in the media. I and, know. you know, I mean, yeah. I, I, I've worked in the media for, and anyone listening to the show knows that I bitch about this all the time, but it's so <laughs> frustrating. It's so annoying. It's like, it's, it is, there is nothing, to borrow the Fox phrase, there is nothing fair and balanced about the media ever. Um, and it, it's just, and they still treat it like a game. They still, you know, they're like, you know, I, and. But I, so, so you, okay, so as communications director in the White House and, and, you know, and on the campaign trail and everything and interacting with all these reporters, do you still pick up the New York Times, the Washington Post, turn on CNN and think, oh, that's accurate? Or do you think like. Oh, I know that there's another side to this. So I'm very skeptical, right? I always think if I read, um, I got to say, like I, you know, um, I think the Washington Post is doing like ex- is doing excellent work, and they did during the campaign. They did. They were groundbreaking in their coverage of Trump, and I think that they uh, made a decision early on for which to, they should be lauded for not treating him and Hillary as you know, like this, like we were false equivalency of like, we do a bad story on Trump, we got to do a bad story on Hillary, yeah. you know, it's just like, we got, that's as if that made them objective and that made it fair, right? Just I think they really, the media really struggles with, you know, uh, how they maintain their objectivity. And um, I think that is, that's totally the wrong question now because they are not objective. <laughs> 
you are not, I mean, I know you, you know, you watch an anchor on CNN. I know they have views. We all know they have views. They just won't say what they are. Right. So I, there, there's something that is, it is, I think that they should be more revealing of what they think. I completely 1 billion percent agree with you. It's, it's, you, it's like you, it's like you're asking someone to walk into a profession and pretend that they don't have feelings about things. It is impossible. And the, and for, for me, I now read, I read The Federalist and I even read Breitbart and things like that because I want to see their views, not their news, their views. Their views, And then I read right. things on the left, which you may perceive as not being on the left, but mm-hmm. more center. And because mm-hmm. I want to see their views, there's news in, in the middle of that, but it, I can, it's, I just find it so fascinating that uh, all the people involved in, in it uh, see it that way and the public And they don't, I feel like they're just, they're trying to revive the old ways in which the media operate. And instead of understanding that they're, you know, you you have to have a new way to protect your, to, to gain and protect your credibility. I think you have to be more transparent about where you're coming from. I think this is why podcasts like yours are more, are more popular, you know, becoming more and more popular because it is a transparent conversation about like what you, what you're holding in your head and it's not a show. So I don't know that cable television will ever adapt to the model that I think they should, which is to be more transparent about what they think. Yeah. Um, and that gives value to, to that. I think that's more valuable than just saying what happened. I mean, I will, um, there are a couple shows on MSNBC that I really like that I do like Nicole Wallace and uh, Chuck Todd's, for example. And, you know, sometimes I'll go on and they'll be like, wow, there was so much news today. I'm like, not really, <laughs> <laughs> not really. There was a lot of activity today, yeah. but I don't think you're just saying this happened. That's not news. And I think that to protect their credibility, which I do worry about, because I think the places like the New York Times and you know and the Washington Post are important chroniclers of what's happening and they have the capacity to communicate and write well and report well and chronicle this in a, for a way that like those of us who can't keep track day to day can, but they have to figure out a way to be more transparent about how they're doing it in order to be considered credible and like move away from this notion that objectivity equals credibility. It doesn't, you know, no, you know, there's just like no such thing as objective anymore. I think it probably made sense when there were no bylines in newspapers and now, you know, where it was much more of an institution rather mm-hmm. than individual institutions within the institution. Yeah, it's like we demand transparency in every other institution these days. They need to do it too. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Uh, hey, John, I'm going to take a brief break from this fascinating conversation. Um, and I have a question for you. I, uh, I was just doing some research. And did you know that the, the average person sleeps for one third of their life? The prediction is that uh, the data says that we sleep for 229,000 hours of our lifetime. But I don't sleep very well because I have a really bad mattress, and I'm not sure what to do about it. Oh, Nick, sweet prince, are you struggling to get to sleep? I've got good news. I am. The fine people at Mattress Firm want to help. You know Mattress Firm. It, it, it's America's neighborhood mattress store. It can help you stretch your budget. I know, I know that you make tons of money now, but, but it can help you stretch your budget just a little bit further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. These are mattress experts. All that you know about technology and politics and business, they know way more about mattresses, and they want to help you. Isn't that incredible? Wait, so 
uh, do they have any deals that they're offering to people like me for mattresses? Because I don't know if I can afford a whole new mattress. Let I me mean, first what, of all, I mean, they have deals in spades. But let me tell you what they're going to do for you. Right? They can straight up help you build your bed. From the headboard all the way to the adjustable bases, I just put together an adjustable base for uh, for uh, a bed in, in our new baby's room, and it is a, a very difficult thing to do. So they can do that for you. They even help with the sheets. They are literally even able to help with the bedroom decor. They've got you covered, wow. literally wow. and figuratively. All right, so. What's the deal? Do they have something that'll help me, you know, save me a little money? Well, it's uh, it's tax season, so we all want to save a little bit of money, Nick. But the good news is right here for you, baby. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and save 15% with the code podcast15 through April 10th. 15%. Wait, what was that website again? Mattress what was firm. the website? Oh, no problem, Nick. I got it. Mattressfirm.com slash podcast. It will save you 15% if you enter the wow. code PODCAST15 through April 10th. Run, don't walk. Again, run, don't walk. Mattress Firm offers 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Again, just write it down this time, Nick. Go to Mattress I'm going Firm. To, so it's mattressfirm.com slash podcast, and then I enter the the code podcast 15 and I get 15% off. I'm going to go now because I want to get back to this interview and then I'm going to quickly uh, go and order, order a new mattress. I'm very excited. Thanks so much, John. I'll talk to you again in a little bit. Sleep easy, my friend. So, um, so you were in politics uh, when uh, Bill Clinton was impeached. Yeah. Uh, were you working? The, wh- where were you there then? I worked in the press office. You were in the press office. How, how did you, did you feel like that was a witch hunt? And I asked this question because I'm curious how you feel about the Stormy Daniel stuff as it relates to Trump. I felt like, um, so it's a little more than just that I was there. Monica Lewinsky was my intern. So, um, um, you know, she just sort of happened to be my intern in the, in the chief of staff's office. So I saw a lot that, you know, um, uh, you know, um, I had quite the front seat and had to go to Ken Star Granger and, and all of that. And what it felt to me like was that, you know, she, you know, Monica, her family, you know, she like wrote about this in that van in the Vanity Fair piece here, you know, about, um, uh, you know, what it was like for her, her, for Monica's family to live through this. And I, I remember seeing her mom come out of the grand jury and just being so devastated. Yeah. It was terrible. Like, it's like, it just like always carry that image with me. And it's like Bill Clinton, Monica, her mother, they were just like caught up in this game that was all about men in power. Right. Yeah. And that is, it felt to me like the Republicans were using anything they could find to go after Clinton in this, you know, to go after Bill Clinton in this way. And everyone that, everyone whose lives got destroyed in that were collateral damage. Um, Do you feel the same way about Storm? I mean, look, I'm no so Trump supporter is, in any way, but. Right. Yeah. So it is, you know, it, there's like, you know, I haven't quite wrapped my head around because the other, the other similar, the other parallel for me in my life is John Edwards. I worked for John Edwards. Yeah. And, and if you're to bring a case against 
Donald Trump for a violation of campaign finance laws, which you could conceivably do because it seemed that money was given to Stormy Daniels for the purposes of covering up this affair because it would hurt the campaign. Same thing that happened to John Edwards. Uh, you know, there's all of these threads about men, sex, power, and politics. And I can't believe it's a coincidence. And I can't believe that that it is, you know, something about, you know, a relationship with a woman that ultimately could be the undoing for Trump. <laughs> so, and it's like, you know, maybe I'm too close to it to be able to make sense of, you know, what my what my big takeaway after 20 years of dealing with this stuff should be. Um, but it, you know, the... So he could get he could get caught up in the same circumstance where something that could do real damage to him is is just about you know him and sex and not anything to do with uh, his work as 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 president. Um, Stormy came forward though herself, right? Yeah, she wasn't forced out. It's so, you know there's some so there's some differences. Uh, uh, there's some differences there. But, you know, it's not how I want Trump to go. It's not how I want... Uh, I want Trump to be removed from office, whether by the voters or Congress, <laughs> and I want it done. No. I think it's important that the, the country, whether it's by the Congress or by the voters, rejects the way this man has violated the principles of our country. And that's how I think it could best be put to rest. But, yeah, I mean, I you know, I see it's... It doesn't, you know, it's something really remarkable that the same dynamic is happening well, to, so him, uh, to Clinton. It's interesting. So, reading the book, um, and it's a book written to the first female president of the United States, uh, there's a lot of infidelity. There's not just Edwards and Clinton and even, I guess, Trump uh, um, on the sidelines, but Anthony Weiner and, yeah. and so on. Right. As a woman who wrote a book to a woman, <laughs> and as someone who has been surrounded by these men, and these women who have stood by their side and they they have these gross infidelities that that essentially disparage their entire marriage and everything that someone else has put them I mean it really makes me angry thinking about it mm-hmm. does it make you angry like or are you just like oh well this this is just who these people are and i don't i don't want to get too angry about it cuz i don't want to let their behavior define the women that were around them or my experience in politics. Got it. I don't, like, I believe that Hillary Clinton is a woman of enormous talent and power and um, just a true force, and I don't want her... um, defined or damaged by what her husband did. And I don't want her held accountable for what her husband did. And I don't want, and it's just what troubles me, you know, is to see, you know, her or Huma or uh, Elizabeth Edwards, like, defined by, it's just so confining. Um, and it well, robs them of their own, you know, dignity. And I don't want, I worked really hard for, uh, uh, you know, uh, for a lot of these men um, who I think accomplished a lot of good in the, in the country. And I think it's unfair to me and all the other women that worked for them to have our own efforts um, sort of defined by that. Do you, um, 
uh, when you... This is getting deep. Uh, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not even uh, halfway there yet. But these are, you know, these are big, these are big, deep concepts that I, well, I, just, I, know, I haven't really articulated before. It's interesting. I think, it, well, I think it's what's fascinating is is I saw this, I'm reading the book and I, and I see yeah. these similarities and I think, I mean, look, I, I genuinely do feel bad for Melania. Like you, a lot of people, I do too. I, I do too. I, I, and, and there are certain people like, oh, well she put herself in that situation. Like, I don't think she ever in her wildest nightmares could have imagined the situation that she's in today. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that Donald Trump is not a very caring person towards her feelings if he was i don't think the stormy daniel stuff would have happened and all these other right. things and yeah. and um and you know i as someone who i've continually been trying to understand both sides of the argument and and they all kind of seem like jerks honestly <laughs> like i mean like they i you know yeah. i i think about huma and i watched the documentary and the way anthony treated her and and Bill and the way he, he treated Hillary and like, yeah. and I know that they shouldn't be defined by these people and that yeah. they did do good in the world. But I, I'm, I, what I was really curious mm-hmm. to know was how you as someone who have yeah. this, these beliefs about women and gender and right. so on, um, so found th- yourself working for people I like mean, that. Oh, I don't, I mean, it's like, I don't, I, I do, um, I have thought that, you know, if I just like, oh, did I seek this out and somehow? And I, I think it was just a string of bad luck, but there's definitely, but at some level you're like, this isn't, it's not a coincidence just, I guess that in politics that women, keep arising as weapons that are, you know, are, and that become, either, you know, either that are, that get wet, that, you know, a woman might get weaponized by a man's opponent and she's collateral damage. Like that continues to happen. And I think that that's, like, that's not a coincidence, but what I think, what I want for women in this moment is like, it's like, I look at Hillary and, you know, her husband um, wronged her and she is a, you know, fully capable, independent, incredible woman who made a decision that her religious beliefs and her love for her husband um, was such that she wanted to stay committed to that marriage. And I know that she is glad that she did. And that is like what is hers to own and what I want to be the thing that's in people's heads when they're looking at this and not situation and not, um, you know, how he treated her. It's like, how can we let women shake themselves free from someone else's decision? So when you wrote this book, was there a particular woman in mind that you were thinking of, or was it was it? Uh... It wasn't. It was. I had. I had. I had a lot in my mind. I had. <laughs> it really uh, doesn't come across on the pages. <laughs> my 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 father says it's chalk. Jennifer, this is chalk. It's a short book, but it is chalk full of ideas. I have to read it a few times. Um, so. I, I think that a woman could win in 2020. Like, I think that's as hard as it was for Hillary. I, I think that that is, that that is possible. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't write this book thinking it's way off in the future, but what I had, I wanted, you know, there's like, I see young girls in high school and younger even who were devastated by Trump's loss. 
or excuse me, by Hillary's loss, and then motivated to imagine a new way. I see, you know, middle-aged women who haven't been, um, you know, whose kids probably went off to college and their kids probably make fun of her and tell her, like, you know, make fun of mom and, like, she can't make a difference. And I know that woman's going out and marching and maybe even running for office and doing, getting involved in her community in ways that she never has before. And I want that woman to know that, that her efforts matter. I see women from Hillary's generation who, like, made it possible for me to do what I I did today, and I want them to know that, that their efforts are appreciated and that their efforts mattered. And it is all of these women that I have in my in my head as I'm writing this book, because I want every one of them who's reading it to know, I mean, Dear Madam President is just the, it, it's like the lofty goal. It's the thing that I want you to know you are, you are capable of achieving. And it's like all of those women that I had in my head as I was writing it. How would you feel if Ivanka Trump read the book and won <laughs> as a result, or read it and was the one that became the first female president? I mean, you know, if that's if if that's where our country, you know, decides to go, I can't. I, I imagine she'd be better than her father. <laughs> so I can't. Right? She seems to have slightly more. She seems to have some more, some more empathy. A little bit. A little bit. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Jared but. would be the perfect. Uh, Apparently that guy's a doofus. I don't know him at all. But that's yeah, I've, I've heard many. We've had many guests on here who have said just that. Uh, um, uh, so um, one of the things that happened while you were on the campaign was that your sister Dana got mm -hmm. sick, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and there's also the moment when Elizabeth um, gets sick and passes mm -hmm. away too. Yeah. Um, uh, Elizabeth Edwards and. Um, I was really struck by the, there was a, uh, a line that you, a little paragraph you wrote where Elizabeth Edwards talked about when one of her kids died and, and that, that every moment before, um, before that there was, she imagined her mind as this chalkboard that was just full of just random crap written all over yeah. it. And the moment that, that her kid died. It was 20 years ago. Oh no, it was 22 years ago today. 22 years ago today. Wow. Well, died. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, that chalkboard was just completely erased. Right. Um, so you, uh, your sister passed away a week after? So she, uh, on the Friday before the election, my, her, her name was Dana. My sister Beth called me. Um, we were in Cleveland and said that they expected that Dana was going to die that weekend. The this weekend, is before the, the weekend before the election. Before the election. And then I needed to call her to say goodbye. Um, and then I went, she ended up not dying that weekend and I was able to go a week later, um, on the, the 15th was my 50th birthday. And I went to Dallas, um, to see her, to say goodbye. And then she, she ended up di not dying until February, but those were the last days that I spent with her. And so when you think about the amount of time on the road, yeah. um, you know, the, beatings that you guys took <laughs> in the media and yeah. on social media and everything. And was there, was there a moment where that chalkboard was wiped clean for you? That moment? Yeah. That moment for me was waking up on Wednesday, November 9th. You know, it was, um, into this whole new universe. I mean, and I, I describe it in the book because I, I describe it in pretty graphic detail because I want, because I think a lot of people felt that way and you want people to recognize it. Um, and 
and people who didn't, like, hey, here's how it felt. <laughs> um, but I say it was like it felt like the movie scene that you never see, the scene where you don't save the world just in time. It's like the scene where it explodes. And I really felt Please like, don't let it explode. I really felt <laughs> like I had been hurled into a black hole and that so much so that I, I, I truly had the thought, I looked at my phone and I, and I actually wondered if it would still work because I felt like I'd been transported into a new universe. And like, as you go to a foreign country and your phone no longer works, I was like, I'm not sure if this is going to work anymore. Like that's how stark it felt to me, a different world. And I, that is my you know, no one actually died in that moment or, you know, and it wasn't 9-11 and that thousands of people lost their lives. But for me, that was where my chalkboard got wiped clean. And that was the moment when you were done? I wasn't. I just felt that it, you know, I was really frightened because I was in a new universe and you desperately want to go back to what you know. And it was so close to me. It was just hours before and I wanted to, you know, I remember President Obama saying to me just 36 hours before at our last rally we had with him in Philadelphia, he like pointed at me, he's like, do not mess this up. <laughs> and I was like, we got it, we got it. <laughs> and he's like, you just desperately, it's like when somebody dies, I think you just desperately want to go back to the day before where, before that all happened. And I felt like that for a while. And eventually you see things like, Two nights after Hillary lost, I went out. We went out, uh, out of our headquarters in Brooklyn, and there were a bunch of kids, Brooklyn, from the uh, nearby school that had come, and they had covered our sidewalks in front of our headquarters in chalk with all these hopeful messages, rise up, do the most good, everyone belongs here, and they were there to cheer on our staff and like say thank you. Do you remember after the election, everybody was like telling Hillary thank you randomly and mm-hmm. started Night like, made fun of it, and you know, mm-hmm. it's like, and they, and I it was like the first glimmer of hope that I had that I thought, oh, okay, like Trump is a big action, him winning, and there's going to be a reaction. And these kids are going to remember for the rest of their lives when their parents brought them to Hillary's headquarters. Like the night, two nights after Donald Trump was elected, my parents made me go stand out in front of Hillary's headquarters and like cheer them on and say like, our country is better than this. And that was like the beginning of the turnaround. I think that was the beginning of the turnaround for the country. So at some point, I started to feel more solid in this new world. It's still, I was still like a little bit uncomfortable, but I felt like, okay, now at least we know what we're dealing with. You know, all the like little questions you had in your mind, like maybe women are forced to being lived by a certain set of rules that don't really apply to us, and that doesn't really feel right. And then Donald Trump wins, and you're like, yes, I was right. <laughs> like, it's like they just put it in my face, like this is the guy who can win in America unless you women demand something different. And that's what's happened is women are saying, no, I'm not playing by these rules anymore. Um, and they're running for office. You have Me Too. You have a Parkland and, you know, like all the energy behind those students saying we're going to do things differently. So that so it was, you know, so for me, that was my moment where the chalkboard got wiped clean and I wanted to be very deliberate to make sure that whatever I did do, you know, I was concerned when the election ended that, you know, if I don't work in the West Wing, like, do I really have value? And if I'm not in a presidential campaign, what am I really focused on? And like, is it worthwhile? And I decided like, all I really need for to feel fulfilled and like I'm contributing is to do good work 
in something that matters. And I decided for me, it was writing this book because I had watched what happened to her and I had these experiences in my own life and learned a lot from Elizabeth and Dana about women doing hard things. And I could put that in a book and maybe it would hit at a time where women were ready to feel inspired. And like, that seems to be happening. So that's good. (laughs) Is there any part of you, I, I believe, and I'm, you know, let me know what you think here, that the Me Too movement would not have happened if Hillary were president. I believe that is true. Is there any part of you that looks at the... Well, you don't. Like, I, I think that that's, like, I, I think that's probably more true than not true. Like, you just can't really know. Yeah, but, but let's, like, let's, pretend, yeah. let's pretend that we have the power to, okay. to predict uh, the past um, or the future. <laughs> uh, um, and, and I also, you know, I do believe... I mean, look, the reality is, and you wrote it in your book, Trump was, in many respects a response to Obamacare and mm-hmm. gay marriage and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. It, and it's almost like it's like this, you know, I mean, I, I don't think he's the most, uh, the person I should be quoting right now, but, but Mark Zuckerberg recently said to someone, I know that, that he sees politics as a sin wave, that, you know, you have this, this movement and that movement and up yeah. and down and up and down. And he's partially probably right. Do you, when you look at the... At, the massive movement that has happened with Me Too, when you look at um, uh, the response where you are seeing a higher number of women, you know, registering to run for office, um, mm-hmm. whether it's local, state, whatever, um, is there part of you that that is not happy that Hillary didn't win, right. but is has a different feeling about the loss? I do. I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. The thing that I can't get beyond is every day you see somebody being hurt by him, right? Someone's yeah. life just being destroyed, upended. Like you see that every day. So you can't look at that and think, oh, this is better. But I am glad that we looked at it and said, what can we, you know, that we're going to, we're, we're not going to let this be in vain, something better is going to come out of it. And I think that Donald Trump is dysfunction, I mean, excuse me, is disruption come to politics and democracy to prove to us that it is broken and has to be completely rethought, right? The way Uber did to taxis. So he took the game that, you know, people like me had been playing and like, you know, in the Obama world, we would do this. It's like, well, there's some people who are never going to vote for us. We're not going to worry about them. We're going to talk to the people who are going to vote for us, and we're going to try to leverage that group of people to be as big as it possibly can and make sure they turn out to vote. And he took that and made it perverse and drew, and designed a campaign that was all about dividing people and making a relatively small group of people extraordinarily enthusiastic about voting for them, and then he shot the gap and managed to pull off this amazing win and that is dysfunction that is disruption come to politics to prove to you that your game has run out but, of time and but and I, compl- like, yeah. I completely agree and i think that you know politics like media is completely broken but but now you know so now you can so now people but, are doing so it different but who's who but who's going to run for who's going to be on the democratic ticket in 2020 that's that's not a. I mean, what Kamala Harris? I mean, look, she's but great, but that, like it's or Cory Booker. I mean, they're so I traditional that, politicians, no? Yeah, they are. I don't know that we and I can't. I, I haven't quite imagined what that you know what it's going to look like. I think it is possible. I do. You know, one thing I would point to is Beto O'Rourke in Texas, 
Okay. Yeah. So I feel like that guy is going to be Ted Cruz. He's still way behind in the polls, but he is going to be Ted Cruz. Like yep. that is, he's the kind of candidate that's going to win. No PAC money, no corporate money. He goes town to town. He like runs with everybody. You know, he's just, so it shows me that people are responding to a candidate that stays close to the ground, is focused on local issues, is very true to, you know, is willing to reveal their soul because whoever is the Democratic nominee in 2020, it's going to be a brutal um, outing. And it, it, it is, you know, you have to be willing to just bear your soul and everything about you to the American people. I think people are going to want, in reaction to this, because they're a pendulum will swing, someone who can has experience, a level head, and can bring and is inclined to bring the country together, just sort of like naturally built that way. Do you think that the Democrats can win in 2020, or do you think Trump might win again? I think it's possible Trump could win again, but I think the Democrats will win in 2020. But it's like it can, you gotta, you gotta. But I, you know, I'm very concerned about the health of the republic and the democracy. the The biggest concern. The biggest obstacle I felt we had in 16 that no one ever talks about is that, you know, people were like, well, why didn't you have a better economic message or do more ads around it? It's like the economic message couldn't be heard, you know, partly because of Trump and all the distraction, but also because I think no one has any belief that government can do anything. So Hillary had a, you know, good economic plan, but I don't think anybody believed that it was credible to think it could get done. So if you if you're now so what are you doing as a candidate? You're running on a bunch of ideas that people think are never gonna happen. Like what is that? How do you change that? What is that? (laughs) You know, like well, of course that doesn't. You know, like why do you think that's going to work? That's not going to work. So I think that you have to start with something. I think that you know, and 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 I suspect what among the things that Trump supporters found attractive to him was just he reflected a story of America that they believed in and that they wanted to believe in, and that made their lives more meaningful and more valuable. My husband says to me all the time, I don't understand these Trump voters. Like, he's not, their their lives aren't getting any better. They're not making more money. They're not, it's like, you can't say their lives aren't better. Their lives are better because Donald Trump is president. And they he tells a story about America that they believe, and that is now the country they live in, and their lives are better for it. <laughs> Um, and I think likewise, a, you know, a Democrats are very mistaken if they take that spiritual element off the table. I think people want to be led. I think you need to listen to every person in America and you need to tell everyone in America, you have a place here and this is where you fit in, in our future. And it's at that point that people can stop pitting themselves against each other. And I think you have, and so, and then you have to, and then, you know, and I think you have to be, I think the Democratic nominee's got to be brutally honest uh, with the American people on the state of the economy, what's possible and what's not, and here's how we're going to start. And here's how, you know, Congress may not want to do something, but we're going to leverage, you know, this part of the economy to try to make the, you know, make the situation better in your town. Um, But you can't have... You can't have big, grandiose things that everyone knows aren't going to materialize. But so Hillary's been out there recently. I mean, she was just in India and said something along the lines of that she believes that the people that voted for Trump were essentially racist and backwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I actually think she used those words. 
that's not necessarily helping, right? Yeah, but she's not running for president. I mean, uh, you know, not, not not everything that Hillary says is the right thing to say. She <laughs> she has uh, she's fallible. She makes mistakes. I don't. I think generally it's you know it's like you, where you, where you get into trouble, and this is like the times where you think about Hillary. Like she rarely screws up. Some people like a lot of people don't like her. A lot of people. But she doesn't. She doesn't often just make mistakes. And there are times, like where the comment that you just said before, deplorables. Those were like bad things to say. That was a mistake. Are those are those and, things? He's someone who knows her so well. Are those things? And it doesn't have to be. Just, I'm not just trying to catch you out yeah, with Hillary. I'm yeah. just curious. Are those things? I'm exhausted. I've been on the campaign trail 14 hours, 16 hours a day, I, yeah. or I, I'm, you know, in India and I'm jet lagged. Or is it like, I can't believe I fucking lost. Like these people suck. Like what? Yeah, no, I think it's the, I think it's the former. And you know, when she said when the deplorables comment, which mm. is just like a, like a blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, she had pneumonia you know, when she said that. Yeah. But the, but what I think is that what, where you get into trouble is if you generalize and comment on your opponent's supporters, yeah. right? Don't characterize your opponent's supporters. Don't characterize why people made decisions. That's true. Trump never did that, did he? I mean, he attacked everyone, but he didn't attack... That's a good point. I didn't really thought about. It. He didn't really attack Hillary supporters. Yeah, he attacked Hillary and right, everyone right. else. Don't never... don't attack. Don't characterize. Don't like that's that's like the thing. You know, I think I'm that's sure he the did behind right closed doors, but yeah, right. there was a few stories about that. Uh, so, so you and I, and we're just winding down here mm-hmm. a little. Um, uh, you and I actually met at um, at Harvard at the was it the Kennedy <laughs> yeah, uh, Center, and wow. um, it was the the and you write about this in the book a little. Um, it was the event where they every year, every four years, they invite the um, uh, campaign officials from from uh, from everyone, everyone who ran, and they talk about the campaign and what they did and what worked and so on and so forth. And it was the most insane. I think probably one of the most insane moments of my career because I sat there in that room, and oh Kellyanne God. Conway literally looked like. A fourteen-year-old that was going na 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 na. We, I mean, she essentially. Those I mean, wor- that's words what they were all doing. Out. They were all, yeah. Brad and, and, Pascal, that yeah, guy, Brad, oh my, whatever his name is. There was a, there was the, a, ge- the digital genius, the digital genius who's now running There's the twenty twenty camp- campaign. Yeah, right. um, uh, and I, and you write in the book how you, you, th- you thought you were being composed, and you were like, <laughs> and really, you, you know, and I, you know, everyone uh, on both sides. Um, were that there was emotions were high and and so on there was, but there was one moment i wrote in my notebook um robbie mook had said uh something about russia and we knew the russians were behind this and brad pascal and Corey Lewandowski looked at each other and smirked yes and and i wrote that down and i was i was like what what did they why did they do that and at what point did you real like i i remember robbie telling me at one point that you know he was like walking home different directions because he he thought the Russians were you know following right. him. Like, at what point did you realize that they were really, really kind of involved in this whole thing? June, 
June of 16 when you found out that the emails had been hacked or so I can't it's hard to keep the timeline exactly straight but it was you know because John got hacked in April and, and but the DCCC was hacked too which people sort of forget about in the timeline um, before the DNC hack and we you had some awareness of that because things started weirdly appearing like all of a sudden like emails would start appearing on like Guccifer um, some of them would be Podesta some of them not um and it wasn't clear, like, you know, it's like, did the hack happen here? Did there, was there a hack? You know, so it was like hard to know if, you know, you're trying to, to track it down to be like, well, how did they get that email? Maybe it's because they hacked the DNC and the DNC had this email because it got forwarded to them, like, whatever. But what I recall is the moment, you know, a big moment was in June of 2016, the Washington Post reported that, uh, that, it was, you know, administration officials that U.S. officials, I think, was was the sourcing, was that um, it was that the Russians had done the hack, and I know how from having worked the White House, I know that the way it was reported, I know that that meant that the Washington Post found somebody on Capitol Hill or the administration to confirm that it was the Russians, and then from that moment on, for me, it was a different deal because what the Russians do that all the time, fine. Russians do that, Chinese do that all the time. They want to know as much as they can about the president, the United States presidential yeah. election. What they do not do is then, after hacked, take the emails and leak them for the purposes of helping one side over the other. So, and yeah, Robbie is right. It was scary during the summer of 2016, and when it's so tragic that. Um, that young man, Seth Rich, was yep. killed at the DNC, um, was murdered. He worked at the DNC, and he was murdered um, late one night. You know, it could have been a burglary. It could have been something else. But, you know, we knew the, the Russians are capable of, um, uh, you know, they, they do this, right? I mean, they poison people. They kill people. They kill people in their own country. They rarely do it in the United States. But they were playing a very fierce um, game. And, yes, you were... I would watch where I was going, and we were told, don't walk home the same way and understand you're a target and they know what you look like, and, you know, they're all around. And um, I had this crazy moment where I, I, I got really sick and dehydrated and exhausted, and I fainted, and um, I came to, and the doctor that was standing over me at the, like, Brooklyn emergent, you know, emergency care place was a Russian doctor, and he li- he told me he was for Donald Trump. He was, like, trying he was like trying to get me to come to, and he knew I worked for Hillary. He's like, I support Donald Trump. And I was like... <laughs> That's not what you want to hear. Why? And you're... I asked him why, and he said, because there's too many immigrants. And then he, like, goes to give me an IV, and I was like, is this Russian doctor who is a Trump supporter really going to inject something into my veins? Like, you know, these are the crazy things you think about. But, yeah, it was that... And I remember, I didn't remember that they smirked. It's interesting that you say that about Corey and Brad. But I do remember that Brad said, and you never saw it coming. I remember he said that. Yeah. There was a lot of very weird stuff that was said. I just couldn't believe we had to sit across the table from those people for two and a half hours. <laughs> I was just like, this is. And they were they were like 12-year-olds. They were like mocking us and... And I, I think Harvard thought that it could be normal and civilized, and we tried to tell them that was not how it was going to be. But I wrote a piece about it, and I said, you know, it was as if they, you know, Kellyanne Conway and Brad and all these, they, they were, they'd never won anything 
<laughs> and that they had finally won, and they didn't know how they they had finally won by by being jerks. Yeah, and they didn't know how to respond when they had won, so they continued to be jerks. And it wasn't like, hey, this is what we did, and this is how it worked, and so on and so forth. Ironically, the one person who I thought was the calmest was Paul Manafort, who uh-huh. was like, well, we did this thing and that thing, and that's how we got the evangelicals, and so on and so forth. Do you think? Um, uh, do you think that, that the Russian stuff will be the downfall of Trump? Um, I guess I do. You do? I guess I do. You think it'll all come... Well, I think... I guess I think this. Um, I think that, you know, I was... I was the, the moment for me this year, or in the last year where I kind of changed my attitude about how serious uh, this is for them, for, for Trump and how much exposure they have is when I saw that email from Don, stupid Don Jr. Donnie, Donnie Jr. Like, what a moron. If I got an email like that that said, hey, we have dirt on your opponent, and because the Kremlin really wants your opponent to win, I would have thought that was a setup from the Clinton campaign. <laughs> you know, I would have thought that was a setup from the FBI. Um and to see how he responded, you thought, oh, wow. If that's how they handled that, they are in way deeper than I ever appreciated. And I just, you know, we always, you know, Trump always backs Putin, like at every turn, um, or, you know, will only take or say a anti-Putin, very, very rare characteristics that ever said anything anti Russian when he's like absolutely forced and we keep looking for more complicated reasons as to why that is other than they got something on the guy mm-hmm. and he's really exposed and I think that that will either get you know that will get revealed when Mueller comes out um the I have uh, the uh Republicans in Congress there's like I have like bottomless disappointment in them it's just like bottomless mm-hmm. like every day they outrage me uh, about their failure to hold this president accountable. So I don't think that they will take action against Trump, but if it comes out that the Russia stuff is like deeper than people had thought, you know, like here's a theory, it's possible that Trump supporters could say even tr- even some some even some Trump supporters could say God, you know, I love the guy, but wow, he's really exposed and Russia's like not our friend. And it's just like, he's just, he's just too compromised. He can't do the job. There's a, there's a chance people could have some of that reaction. More likely Democrats come in. I don't think you run on impeachment or anything like that, but you come in and you just run. In 2018. 2018. You come, you know, you you went in 2019, you come in, you do Congress's job, which is to hold the president of the United States accountable. Like they wrote it right there in the constitution. It's not like you're being political. You're doing your job to hold, you know, he's a dangerous threat to this country. And they, you know, started the process of doing true oversight of this administration and, you know, you know, maybe that ultimately leads to impeachment. But I just, at every turn, even I myself, I feel like I've underestimated how deep the connection to Russia goes and what a threat it truly is to the sanctity of our republic. Because what I think the Russians really want is they want us to think none of this matters. They want us to think that our system doesn't really work and isn't representative. And so you really got to purge that. But the only, then the reason I bring this up is because one of my worries is that we'll be able to push back a little, like the tech companies will do their job and push back a little in 2018. And then, and then by 2020, 
there'll be more AI and, you know, and mm -hmm. things like that. And that what happened in 2016 will happen with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. And Trump has no incentive when the Republicans, because they are spineless for the majority, mm -hmm. uh, have no incentive to stop Russia from doing that because right. it means that they win. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm really, I'm very concerned about it, which is why it's, you know, I, I think a lot of people look at Russia, there are a lot of people who don't like Trump, look, look to see what's the best tool in our toolbox for getting rid of him, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think, like, I look at the Russia stuff as a true threat. They, they want us to believe that our system doesn't work. They want to undermine it. And... Um, and it may be in that, you know, in dealing and exercising that you exercise him too. But one way or the other, I think, you know, our country has to reject him. All right. So, uh, I have one last question for you, but before I get to the last question, I want, can you give me a, an anecdote? Like you've been in politics, you've been in the white house, you've been, you know, on the planes with Hillary, like give us yeah. a really good juicy fun story it doesn't have to be you could have told it before <laughs> just a really good like what's the story when you're sitting around dinner with a bunch of friends uh -huh. and having a glass of wine and you've just finished your meal and some and you tell the story like what's the fun story what's the fun just what a good is? anecdote I know, I know. like the I moment know. you were in the white house and you tripped over michelle obama and no, uh, they usually involve Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> there's some that are, um, I guess this one is not, the Joe Biden ones are pretty amusing, but they, um, but there's one that's an Obama one that I think is pretty moving that mm -hmm. people like to hear. Sounds good. Um, which is, this is after um, Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is, uh, Trayvon Martin, um, this is after, uh, the, uh, the, um, the guy who shot him, whose name is escaping me now, um, uh, was acquitted. And, um, there was, you know, a lot of, and it was just like, and I just learned a lot from, um, from President Obama and, and, and watching him and he's in, incredibly perceptive about what people need from him and from the, from the president. And just like, it's just so devastating to so many family, African-American families to have that happen. And, um, and it's just like, it just like, uh, every time this happens, it's just like another, another, you know, reason why they, you know, feel like they can't get a fair shake in America. It's like another death. And, we were trying to, we were fussing about what, how should he respond? You know, should he, does he need to speak? Does he, should he do an interview with like, with, um, you know, should he do African-American radio? Should he go to a boys club and, and accost you and be with just some young teenage black boys and let them know that they're loved and valued? Like, and is this a conversation you're having with him? This or? is a conversation we're having amongst ourselves, the staff. And so he calls us down as me, Jay Kearney and Valerie Jarrett to talk to us about it. And, and so I said to him, okay, Mr. President, like we're thinking about these different options for you, about ways you can address this. And, you know, I assume that you think that the African-American community needs to hear from you. And he said, no, I think I need to speak for them. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a totally different deal. And he got up from, he's like, I've been thinking about this. Let me like tell you all what I, what I think I need to say. And he got up from his 
uh, desk and went and sat in that yellow chair, you know, by the, um, that he all, you know, the president of the United States always sits in that yellow chair by the, the, by the, by the fireplace to the right of the fireplace, your face in the fireplace. And he, um, sitting there and I'm sitting on the couch next to him and it's our first black president with a bust of Martin Luther King behind his head and the emancipation proclamation hanging above. Hmm. Right. And that is my line of sight. And he lays out the first president of the United States lays out to me what it is like growing up as a black man in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how, you know, white women would like cross the street when they see him walking down the street. Like I've done that. Mm-hmm. Maybe I did that to Barack Obama. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, security guards following him around stores because they think that he might sell, you know, shoplift something. How he and Mrs. Obama talked about if Malia and, and Sasha were boys instead of girls, they'd have to have the conversation with the first children of the United States and tell them to be careful of the cops. Um, and he laid this all out, and I just thought, you know, there's a lot of those jobs that's a grind, just like any job, right? And it's really hard in the, the White House. There's no good answers, and you're criticized for no matter what you do, and um, it's, you know, it can be really hard. And then there's these moments where you are, like, of enormous privilege, where you're like, I am witnessing a great moment in the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was my moment. And... <clears throat> He said, um, at the end, he's like, so that's what I think I need to say. And we're like, you should say that. And he said, well, where do you think I should do this? And then we'd been like fussing about like, where do we tell the story and what's the right venue and da, 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 da. Uh, what's in just the right message? I was like, I don't know. You have a briefing room. That's what it's there for. You should just go out and say it. Cause like, it didn't matter yeah. where he did it. Cause what he had to say was so powerful. So the next day he went to the briefing room and basically, I mean, just then delivered to, you know, all the country what he had said to us privately. So, you know, that's like the moment that I hold of something, um, you know, that was like really special to be privileged moment in American history to see. That's cool. All right. So last question, Mm -hmm. what's next? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, um, (laughs) I love writing as it turns out. Loved it. I was really surprised. Yeah. I love writing books. I love it. It's really, really fun. It's hard. Yeah, but uh, that's what makes it fun. So rewarding. Um, I was very surprised to, I'm such a social person and I love politics and I've just, that you could, you know, lock me in a room and uh, I would find that rewarding and satisfying. And I also, of course, having like worked as parts of, you know, a campaign, White Houses where so many people have to weigh in and there's so many considerations. It's so incredibly liberating to be like, I think this yeah. <laughs> sent. I remember the first time I wrote a book and, and I said to my, my publisher, I was like, so what do you think? And they were like, your name on the cover, it's what you think. It's not what we think. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And did about? you find that thrilling, scary? It was like, it's scary because it means that if you get it wrong, that they're, yeah. they're coming for you. But in today's day and age, you could breathe wrong and they come after you so it just doesn't make it make a difference really yeah i feel like you had i mean i was surprised because i turned it i turned in my first draft and i was i was kind of ex- i've never written a book before so i was expecting like a lot of rewrites and they're like this looks pretty good it's like here you might want to think i was like what wait wait are you gonna wait, wait aren't, aren't grown-ups gonna weigh in and do something to this but um i find that i got some good i got two good pieces of advice dig deep and don't hold back and i find if you don't hold back it comes across and then that's when you're sort of free from attacks because if you're just saying, like if you're really honest about what you believe and what your experience was, 
people are going to find, you're like looking to, they're going to find, even though it wasn't their experience, some universality, like grain of truth that they can relate to. And that's what I find really rewarding about it. Well, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I picked it up. I, and I said to you earlier, to be honest, I was like, oh, I'm just going to skim this. And then I started reading it and I, and, and I was like, wow, I just finished that. It was amazing. And I highlighted it a bunch of pages. Do you think you'll so go great. back into politics ever or are you done? Sure. You know, I, I, I mean, I still, you know, I do, I work for, um, now I work at the, uh, for the Center for American Progress. I do work for them and also the Emerson Collective, um, which is this mm-hmm. really amazing, uh, uh, organization working in education, immigration, media, does a lot of, uh, uh, really groundbreaking work right now. Um, so I, you know, I always am going to, uh, I think I will always care about politics and be involved in it. But, um, I think that this, you know, I think writing is like a better thing for me. Well, the book is called Dear Madam President, an open letter to, uh, women who will run the world. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time today. So fun, Nick. I really, it was a really great conversation. Really good. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today, Jennifer Palmieri. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Yes, that's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there, preferably a glowing five-star, amazing, fantastic one at that. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Mattress Firm. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. Thank you.